So the implication of that is that you have like reversed all of development. Your whole life, your whole adulthood, through adolescence, back in time, through childhood, back into the womb, and back to the three-day-old embryo state. Wow. It sounds so, like magic. It, it does. And that's why I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hi, and welcome to episode 38 of the Genomics Podcast. So although scientists don't really have an exact number, they estimate that your body is composed of 30 to 40 trillion cells. Now think about that for a minute. You started life as a single egg, and after fertilization by a sperm cell, you ultimately became you. And you are this large organism that contains a vast number of diverse and highly specialized cells. So how did that happen? Well, to understand that, you need to understand the biology of embryogenesis. And that's the developmental process by which an embryo forms and develops. Embryogenesis is possible because of primitive undifferentiated stem cells that are pluripotent, meaning they can differentiate into multiple types of cells. And it's these stem cells that ultimately develop into the cells and tissues of the three primary germ layers of the embryo. To put all of this in perspective, I'm joined by Dr. Amy Ralston. Amy is the James K. Billman Jr. MD Endowed Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology at Michigan State University. She joined me to talk about her use of genomics to study stem cell biology and embryogenesis. So Amy, I really want to thank you for inviting me here to your lab at Michigan State. I've been reading about some of the work you do in stem cells, and it's super interesting. So I'm really delighted that we have a chance to sit down and talk about it. Before we get into some of the scientific stuff, I was wondering if you could just briefly introduce yourself, your scientific background, and how you got involved in studying stem cells. I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin studying using biochemistry and fruit fly genetics to understand the principles of animal development. And that was around the time that Jamie Thompson first derived human embryonic stem cells at the University of Wisconsin. So that got me really interested in trying to study stem cells in the future. So that led me to the laboratory of Dr. Janet Rossent in Toronto, who's a leader in mammalian stem cells and embryos. And it was there that I began to try to understand how stem cells represent development. Do they follow the rules of development or do they break the rules of development? Mm -hmm. So before we get into, I think, more detailed discussion of the biology, can you kind of, like for a layman, what is a stem cell? Where do they come from? What do they do? Good question. Stem cells have two important properties. One is that they can proliferate. They can make more of themselves. And the other is that they can differentiate, which means become more mature or become different from what they started out as. And no other cells have those properties. Embryonic cells don't as much. They don't proliferate as much as stem cells can. And cancer cells can proliferate, but they have lost the ability to differentiate. That's their problem. They become de-differentiated and they go haywire. And then my understanding is that there are kind of a couple different sources from mammalian tissues for stem cells. You can get them from adult tissues, certain adult tissues, maybe you want to comment. And then I know you can get them from embryonic tissues as well. 
Can you sort of compare and contrast the different types of stem cells and what we know about each of those? So adult stem cells exist in our bodies, and those are mainly used for repairing or replacing tissues. They're normally in a quiescent state, meaning they're not growing or proliferating or dividing very much, but they can be triggered to do so if the body needs to heal. By contrast, embryo-derived stem cells proliferate a lot. That's basically what they do until you ask them to stop proliferating and differentiate into something. But one major difference also is that embryo-derived stem cells don't really exist in the embryo. They are something, an artificial state that is captured by isolating certain embryonic cells and capturing them in a state where they have this new capacity to proliferate. Because in the embryo, they really don't want to just proliferate and not change. Right, the embryo's, that's bad for an embryo. Yeah, the yeah. embryo's mission is that everything should differentiate on schedule and produce right. a baby at the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you said that they have this uh, regenerative potential in mm-hmm. terms of a tissue. So what are some of the examples of the tissues in our bodies, for example, that have to regenerate that need stem cells? One of my favorite paradigms is the skin. Oh, right. There are some transit amplifying cells that are basically a skin stem cell, and that allows us to replace our skin every, I don't know, ridiculously often, like every two weeks or something, (laughs) something kind of staggering, you know. Yeah, that is pretty pretty Um, shocking, actually. We have stem cells in our hair follicles that keep us from going bald or not. There are neural stem cells. People are basically hunting in every tissue to discover the mechanism and how organs can repair themselves, or if they're not good at repairing, could we induce a stem cell state that would enable organs to heal themselves better? One thing I want to pick up on is you mentioned that you were at that kind of groundbreaking seminar where iPSCs or induced pluripotent stem cells, uh, am I right? Yep. So where those were first described in terms of reprogramming, Uh what are induced pluripotent stem cells? How are they different than these adult cells that you can isolate from adult tissues? So really good questions. Reprogramming in this context generally refers to the ability to take a cell in one state, its starting state, and coax it to become another state to acquire the properties of cells of another state. So this has been done in a number of ways. One of those is to take a mature cell type, such as a fibroblast from the skin, and encourage it to become a different kind of cell, like a neural stem cell. Wow, you could do that. That's possible, yeah. The initial, the paradigm for all of this, the first discovery from Yamanaka, was the ability to take a somatic cell and reverse it to all the way back to more of an embryo-like state. And those are called iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells. They're basically indistinguishable from embryonic stem cells. Okay. So the implication of that is that you have like reversed all of development. Your whole life, your whole adulthood, through adolescence, (laughs) back in time, through childhood, back into the womb, and back to the three-day-old embryo state. It sounds like magic. It does. And that's really why I just couldn't quite wrap my head around it. It's so amazing. But of course, anything's possible, right? Reactions are reversible to an extent. So why not development? So how does reprogramming work for these iPSCs? Let's take that as an example. How do you get from a kind of differentiated somatic cell all the way back to an embryonic cell? It's an active area of exploration. 
We don't fully know all the answers, but we know that it's possible. And many people have done it. There's many different cocktails that will work. The original Yamanaka factors are four transcription factors, OCT4, SOX2, KLF4, and CMYC. So these and were genes that were introduced into those they somatic were, cells. They were introduced, they were chosen by Yamanaka because they're transcription factors, transcription factors that are normally highly expressed in ES cells. Oh, I see. And so then the hypothesis was they should be sufficient if they're ES, if they're pluripotency genes, they should be sufficient to induce a pluripotent state. And so he screened many highly expressed pluripotency factors and identified the bare minimum of four that had that activity. But the really interesting thing is that, so even though all of these different reprogramming models have been developed, they're, for the most part, the process is still very inefficient. Like it happens sometimes to some cells. So one of the approaches that my lab used was to try to identify what are the normal roles of those reprogramming factors during embryogenesis? Because embryos, they don't have this problem of robustness. They make stem cell progenitors 100% of the time. It's a very, very robust system. So we look to see OCT4, which is one of the most commonly used across reprogramming cocktails. What is the role of OCT4 in the embryo? And we made one surprising discovery, which was that OCT4 doesn't simply create the progenitors of the pluripotent embryonic stem cells, but it has an additional role. At the same time, in a neighboring set of cells, it's driving those cells to a different, completely distinct stem cell state. And what are those? Well, strangely, those cells are destined to become an extra embryonic cell type known as yolk sac, not part of the fetus, but at various stages during development, signals to the fetus to make certain things happen, like blood, the first time blood forms, Mm -hmm. or the first time germ cells form. So anyway, OCT4 is creating both of those cell types at the same time in development. So then we went back to the situation of reprogramming to see if that was happening in reprogramming as well. So we looked to see if we could find stem cells that resemble this yolk sac type. And we did. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so that was weird because it means not only do you have this magic, as you called it, of turning a somatic cell into something like an embryo, but we can also get them to go all the way back to become this other cell type that has nothing to do with the fetus. Wow. So you can even skip past that stage. Exactly. Like you could go even further back in time before the fetus and the extra embryonic tissues diverge. That's a good transition into talking about the kinds of technology platforms that you're using. So in these original reprogrammed stem cells, and in your case, you mentioned OCT4, so they're transcription factors. So obviously there's some change in the genes that are expressed in these cells, which Mm -hmm. are probably driving these phenotypes. So what are the kinds of approaches that you use in your lab to kind of get at that mechanism? I mean, we use a variety of approaches. One that really helped us to sort out what we were getting in this mishmash. I mean, you have a dish of cells. What is it? (laughs) You know, so you have to have ways to have hypotheses to go after. Well, we think that those cells that look like yucky IPS cells might not be something gone wrong, but they might be a new kind kind of of cell. A new, yeah, right, exactly. So then we have to put that cell type through the rigors of all of the tests that we can use to phenotype that cell. 
So we used differentiation assays to see, does it behave like a yolk sac stem mm-hmm. cell? We used flow cytometry to see if candidate characteristic markers were expressed at the cellular level, right. single cell level. And we used RNA sequencing. It was one of the most useful because it just gave us a snapshot of the entire transcriptome all at once. So we could compare anything that we made during reprogramming with anything that we pulled out of an embryo and just directly evaluate, are their transcriptomes the same or different? We found that they were the same. Interesting. With very few differences. So that's on the level of gene expression. Have you looked at any other kinds of omics level technologies, like looking at the epigenome or the proteome or any of that? That's where we're heading next. That's really where I want to go. The chromatin state will be interesting to look at because we want to know, is the chromatin state of the cell that gave rise to these two distinct cell types, is it already different? And then it skews the decision to become either IPS or yolk sac stem cell. The proteome is useful because we have hardly any information about this. We measure transcriptome because it's easy. We have nature to thank for for making RNA easy to produce and replicate. Proteome is like that last (laughs) frontier. It's the last frontier. And then it's also like it is more closely related to the actual function of the cell. Exactly, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's where I'm headed. I mean, that's exactly what I want to know. But for now, transcriptome is a pretty good marker of what state things are at. It's a pretty good way to define both what the cell's proteome is likely to be and also what its chromatin state is likely to be. So I was reading a little bit about the work that you're doing. One of the things I like about it is that you're employing a lot of different approaches. You just talked about some of them, transcriptomics. You're looking at some of the cellular phenotypes. I've seen you're doing some cell biology work as well. You publish really beautiful micrographs. So, and I think you've touched on it a little bit, but how do you decide which technology to apply to a particular scientific question? And then the thing I've always wondered I respect people a lot. They're using these technologies. But how do you incorporate all of this different data? Just practically, how do you take data from cell biology, from RNA-seq, and mix it together and get yeah. a good picture? Yeah, I love that question. It's That's, I think, one of the funnest things about being a scientist because you're trying to tell a story from evidence. And so the more evidence, the more different kinds of evidence you have, the richer your story. And how do you connect it? Or how do you decide? I mean, unfortunately, sometimes that decision's made for us. Like, we're not doing mass spec on embryos. Right, right. Not enough cells. But, you know, as we get single cell techniques that were previously not, we're not able to apply to small cell number, but we're developing more and more single cell techniques for looking at more and more complicated things like chromatin state, chromatin architecture. And so this is going to open up huge huge amounts of information. So usually we apply whatever's easiest for the particular system, the challenges of the particular system. I guess that's good advice. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and then for connecting the dots between, I mean, every single experiment, every single technique, you need to have something to compare so you can sort out the signal from the noise. And then once you've controlled, you know, you've compared experiment to control, then there's a signal. And then you can compare the strong signals from all of these different types of approaches and try to integrate them into one. What does it tell you? What's the meaning? The big picture. Yeah. 
So I'm struck by one thing that you said at the beginning, which was that one of the sources for these stem cells was adult tissues that can undergo some regeneration. And I'm wondering, when you're thinking about potential therapeutic applications for some of the work that you're doing, are you primarily thinking about potential therapeutic applications in terms of regenerating tissues, or what are the potential therapeutic applications? I think a lot of stem cell researchers are, that's what they're after, that trying to directly engineer regenerative approaches. And I don't think our research fits as easily into that category because we're not working on adult stem cells. The lessons that we learn could be applied for thinking about other systems, but we study the events in embryogenesis. And so we have some applications to reproductive medicine more than adults. You know, I mean, well, reproduction is part of an adult biology. But thinking about trying to understand the causes and cures for miscarriage is one, because we work on very early embryogenesis, but also birth defects is another important application. And the reason for that, I mentioned that the yolk sac lineage at different times in fetal development causes important events to happen, like the blood, the gametes, and also patterning the head and the heart. And there are a lot of non-lethal human birth defects that cause problems, spina bifida, and cardiac malformation. And so because the yolk sac is involved with that process, at least that's what we understand from animal models, then I think that we can make a lot of headway in this regard. And one of the things I'm most excited about is trying to use reprogramming to create human yolk sac stem cells, which is not something that's ever been done. In fact, we know almost nothing about human yolk sac, other than the fact that It makes contact with the fetus, the fetal lineage, in the same way that the mouse one does. And so it's probably playing those inductive roles the same way in humans as in mice, but it's been completely not studied because we just don't have a system. So we could make those cells using human tissues in the lab and begin to understand the interactions between the extraembryonic and the embryonic lineages. So final question for you is, where do you see this field going over the next five years? What is it about it that really excites you? What are the kind of scientific breakthroughs that you anticipate that were similar to the IPSC story? What are the breakthroughs you're anticipating seeing in the next five years? In five years, I think we're going to have more and more information about single cell chromatin state. The tools, you know, starting with ATAC-seq, already taking us down to the single cell level and enabling us to understand broadly what are the open and closed regions of cells and how does that change between neighboring cells and how does it change over time. There are still a lot of ways to look at chromatin state that are not yet optimized for single cell. In addition, transcription factor binding is not really at cellular level. So the development of single cell approaches and single cell X, Y, Z, seek, those are going to continue to just get better and better. Awesome. Yeah. Amy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to explain about stem cells and your work. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thanks for having me. So NGS-based RNA sequencing can be used to study the transcriptome of stem cells and can help scientists to understand the biology of stem cell reprogramming and differentiation. A better understanding of stem cell biology and embryogenesis has the potential to help improve reproductive medicine 
and to unlock the causes of birth defects, like spina bifida or cardiac malformation. Hey, if you like today's show, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our show from Siri, Alexa, or your Google Assistant. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Eska Villerslev, professor at the University of Cambridge and professor and director for the Center of Excellence in Geogenetics at the University of Copenhagen. We'll be discussing ancient DNA and the impact of next-generation sequencing on studying human evolution and migration, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>